The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. In a room full of people like this, I think that I can uh, safely assume that at some time, at one point or another, you have offended somebody. Likely, you have also been offended by something somebody said. I mean, we even live in a, a day and age where it is kind of true that every five minutes, somebody is offended by something or, or by somebody, for, for whatever little reason that we can think of, we're offended. But at some point or another, we have all experienced this. Either we have offended somebody or somebody has been offended by us. And hopefully the times when we offend somebody, we might not realize it in that moment, right? We might have said something, foot and mouth kind of thing. Man, I wish I didn't say that. We realize it later on and we go back to that person, hopefully, and we apologize to the person that we offended. Hopefully that is the case for us here. But you know, there are going to be times where we as Christians offend people simply because we are Christians and doing what is right and speaking out about what God's word has to say about what is true. Well, we as Christians have to say about God, what we have to say about sin, what we have to say about the world, what we have to say about the Bible, what we have to say about so many things is completely contrary to what the world thinks right now, right? To, to what our culture is thinking, what our culture is redefining and establishing. We, as Christians, when we read the Bible, we see that it is in conflict, right? It's contradicting. We are not in the main stream. There may have been a time where in our culture there was a, a, a mutual understanding that at least you didn't do certain things, right? Or you didn't say certain things. Or you didn't act a certain way. But now all of that's just kind of being washed away and Christians are being more and more realized as those who may be offensive because of what we have to say about the word of God. And so there's the chance that we might even become increasingly less at home within our own country simply because we are Christians and simply because of what we believe and say about the word of God. And so as a result of that, people may be offended by you. If you say what the Bible says, and if you live according to the way the Bible the requests of Christians, and if you speak out concerning the things of God, you will offend people. And in this morning's passage, we are going to see two people that offended others. We're going to see first Christ. He is going to offend the people of his town. They are simply offended by him. And then we're going to see John the Baptist who ends up offending the king of the region. But you remember in Matthew 13, as we were going through it, Jesus was preaching all of these different parables, what were called the kingdom parables. And there were several that were public, right? You remember that he was, he was in a boat off of the seashore. There's this whole crowd on the sea listening to him preach and teach these parables. But then he transitions a little bit and goes into a house and begins these private parables that he begins teaching his disciples. And you remember that there were several parables that he explains a little more in detail specifically to his disciples so that they can have a good understanding of what he's saying as people of the kingdom this is what is going on. But after Jesus preaches his parables, he makes his way back to Nazareth. And if you remember, Nazareth is his hometown. But like everywhere else that Jesus has been, he begins to preach and teach, right? 
Everywhere that Jesus goes, he preaches and teaches. So really, the first place that Jesus wants to hit when he gets to Nazareth, his hometown, he wants to hit the synagogue, right? So you can imagine Jesus. He walks back into his hometown. He's been preaching all over the place. Maybe they had kind of heard of his fame and things that he had been doing. But he goes back to his hometown, gets into the synagogue, and immediately begins teaching the people. Now, you guys, if you live in Windsor or you live in one of the communities around here, you live in a small community, right? Kind of a lot of people know a lot of people. Maybe everybody knows everybody kind of a situation. This would certainly have been the case for Nazareth. When Jesus walks back into Nazareth, they know who he is. So he begins teaching these people, likely people that had known him for his entire existence. And the result of his teaching, like with everywhere else that he's taught, is astonishment. You see that in verse 54 of chapter 13. The result of Jesus' teaching is astonishment. So like anywhere else that Jesus has preached, the people are astonished by his teaching. And so the natural question, you can imagine, if somebody came back to Windsor, to your community that you knew from you know, knee-high to a grasshopper kind of thing, and they come back with all of this wisdom and all of this knowledge, and they begin to teach it to you, What's the question you're going to ask? Look at verse 55. Where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? Right? How in the world does this guy, this guy from Nazareth, this place that we're all from, how did he get these mighty works? How did he get this wisdom? So it's a good question to ask, asking about where he got his wisdom. Where did it all come from? That's the right question. And if it's answered properly, it'll lead down the right path. But if they begin asking more and more questions, like we're going to see, they ask more and more questions that lead down a wrong path, actually. But as they continue to ask questions, they reveal that although they knew Jesus from a a, a young age, they knew Jesus from the time he was probably born, they didn't really know who he was. So they knew who he was in terms of his person, as a human, But they didn't know who he was in regards to his divinity. So they point to his humble, normal, earthly beginnings. And they say, isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Do we not know of his brothers, who his brothers are? Don't we know? Aren't his sisters with us as well? Which, little side note, completely debunks the perpetual uh, virginity of Mary, right? She had many children, apparently, according to this text. But really what these questions translate into is who in the world do you think you are? Who, who do you think you are, Jesus? Coming in here, and where, where did all of these mighty works, where, where did all this wisdom come from? Really the question that they're asking, what's underlying all of it, is who do you think you are? They, they knew who his family was. They had watched him grow up. Uh, they knew that he was not a trained teacher, Right? So he didn't have any sort of training. He didn't have any kind of credential. He didn't spend the time in the synagogue being taught by a rabbi in order for himself to be a teacher. What was Jesus? He was a carpenter like his father, right? Actually, in one of the other Gospels, it just specifically says, is this not the carpenter? It's specifically referring to Jesus and what his occupation would have been following after his earthly father, Joseph. So they know that he's not a teacher. They know. So they ask, where did this man get all of these things They were offended by Jesus. Look at verse 57. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. They were offended by Jesus. Who do you think you are? Offended by him. 
Another way to put this is they were repelled by him. And for many other reasons, people are continuing to find reasons to be repelled or to be offended by Christ. What Jesus says about hell, that we've even looked at in the study of Matthew, what Jesus says about hell is offensive. What Jesus says about my immoral lifestyle is offensive. What Jesus says about divorce is offensive. What Jesus says about giving and judging other people and a million other things are offensive to us. Because what Jesus has to say is holy, pure, and good. So therefore, to a people that aren't holy, pure, and good in and of ourselves, we find so much of what he has to say offensive. One commentator said this, It is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. Men have all kinds of reasons to find Christ offensive. Yeah, here he is. He's going to his hometown. He's doing what he is supposed to do in terms of his preaching and teaching the word of God to his fellow townsmen. And they found him offensive. And I genuinely believe that if we are doing what we ought to do in terms of our preaching and teaching and sharing and proclaiming the word of God to our fellow townsmen, then they are going to be some people who are offended by us. Is that not the case? And when you go about and you're teaching and you're preaching and talking about Jesus and you're telling people about him and what he came to do and the things that he taught within the Gospels, will they not find you offensive? I I think so. If you're telling them the whole truth about what he has to say, people are going to be offended. And it's not as though we don't go to them with tact, right? It's not like you walk up to somebody and say, your your opening line is, you're going to hell. Or Jesus says you're doing this and you need to just stop doing this, right? It's not like that at all. But that we go to them with the tact. And we go to them uh, honoring them and loving that person. But when it comes down to the truth, so many people, because we are not good in and of ourselves and apart from Christ, we have nothing. We're following after Satan. We're not following after Christ. So what we have to say about Christ is going to be offensive. You may have kind of heard some of the things that Jesus heard. Who are you? I've known you since you were a little kid. Right? I know who your mom is. I know who your dad is. I know all the trouble that you used to raise around this town when you were a teenager, but here you are telling me about Jesus. Right? If people found Christ to be offensive, they will also find Christ's followers to be offensive. But like Christ, we cannot pull back. We cannot tame the message that he has given to us. And so these people are offended at Christ. Right? They thought he was a little too big for his britches. But look at what he says and does in verses 57 again in verse 58. And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You notice that Jesus refers to himself here as a prophet. And as such, he is worthy of honor. He is worthy of honor from his people, but it has been denied to him by them. They recognized that he belonged to Mary and Joseph. They recognized all of his siblings and all of that. But what they didn't recognize, although he astonished them with his teaching, they didn't recognize that he was a prophet. 
So we've been following and tracking all throughout this study in the book of Matthew, right behind me, right? The authority of our king. We've been following the fact that Jesus is king. He had come to establish his kingdom, and he himself established as the king. But here, he's referring to himself as the prophet. So we hold to the threefold office of Christ, that he is not only king, but he is a prophet, and he is priest, right? He's the great prophet that has come. He's a prophet of the Lord. He is the great high priest who once and for all did what no other priest could do. He himself became the sacrifice and laid himself aside. So he is the king, certainly. He is the priest, absolutely. And he is also a prophet. Yet within Nazareth on this day, he was a prophet without honor from those whom he was serving. And because of their unbelief, he wouldn't do the miracles there. They were offended by Christ, which led them to believe in him, which led Jesus to not do any works there. He would not, as one commentator said, he would not cast the pearls of his miracles before spiritual swine who refused to believe. But within our text that we're looking at this morning, there's another prophet. And we've looked at him a couple times within our study of Matthew, and his name is John the Baptist. And so I want to introduce you to the four characters that make up the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14. First you have John the Baptist. And then we're going to look at Herod the Tetrarch. And then a woman named Herodias. Kind of a gross name. Herodias. And then fourth we'll look at her daughter whose name is Salome. But John the Baptist of course was the, the forerunner of Christ. You remember back in Matthew chapter 3 where Jesus came to him. And he told John baptize me. And so John goes ahead unwillingly at first, but he goes ahead and he baptizes Jesus, and he's with Jesus when the Spirit descends and the, and the voice of the Father comes, and so forth. But John the Baptist was the one who the Old Testament had prophesied. The, the Elijah that was going to come, the one who was going to prepare the way for the Messiah. So he was that forerunner of Jesus. So John the Baptist, we know him pretty well. But then we have a man named Herod the Tetrarch. He's the ruler over this area of Galilee. And you remember that when Jesus is born, there was another Herod that was ruling over the whole area, and that was Herod the Great. But Herod the Great had died, and so now Herod the Tetrarch, his son, is the ruler over the area of Galilee. So after Herod the Great died, uh, the kingdom, or that area, split into four pieces, and the four pieces went to four different sons of Herod the Great. And so over this area of Galilee was Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod had a brother whose name was Philip, and his wife's name was Herodias. Um, And so Herodias was King Herod's sister-in-law. Now, this is really difficult to make sense of, so track with me. This is a terrible soap opera. Herod the Tetrarch had a brother, like I just mentioned, whose name was Philip. Philip married a girl named Herodias, okay? Herodias was actually the daughter of one of Herod and Philip's brothers. Are you tracking with me? No. Um. (laughs) So Philip and Herod, they're brothers, right? They have a brother who has a daughter named Herodias. Philip, the uncle of Herodias, marries Herodias. Okay? We're tracking so far. So he marries his niece. Everyone say who? Yeah. Okay. So he marries his niece. But then what happens is this. Herod the Tetrarch is married as well. Philip is married to Herodias. So Her- Herodias and Herod, I mean, match made in heaven with the names, right? So Herod and Herodias, they decide that they're going to divorce their spouses and marry each other, okay? 
So that means that Herod marries his niece, Herodias. Okay? So that's a relationship, again, tragic. It's funny in some sense because we find it disgusting, but can you imagine the situation? What a terrible situation for this family. The fourth character that we look at is a girl named Salome. Uh, an ancient historian has told us what her name is. The Bible doesn't tell us, but her name was Salome. And so Salome was the daughter of Herodias from her previous marriage. So, so, so we're going to see Salome. She comes in uh, to the scene a little later. So hopefully that makes sense. Bottom line is we have John the Baptist. We have Herod the Tetrarch, who marries his niece, who was also the former wife of his brother. And, so, uh, and then they have the daughter, or she has a daughter named Salome. But, after all that, I'm, I'm totally thrown off here. Um, <laughs> but as it turns out, Herodias and Herod want to get married. And so John the Baptist, being the kind of man that we know who he is, the guy out in the wilderness, right? What was his message? He had a message of repentance, right? He was in the wilderness. He was that voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare ye the way for the Lord. But a lot of the, what his ministry was, was, was repentance, repent. Turn and believe, repent, and be baptized for the remission of sins, right? And so that was John's message, and so we know him to kind of be a boisterous guy. So when he learns of this marriage of Herod and Herodias, what is a guy like John going to do? The guy whose message is repentance. Well, he's going to look at them and he's going to say, you must repent. You cannot live that way. In fact, it says there in verse 4, look there with me, in chapter 14 and verse 4, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So what was the result? He put him into prison. So John wasn't mincing words. He was calling this ruler out, and the result of doing so would be prison. Look at verse 5 with me. And though he wanted, though he, Herod, wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. So really, keeping John the Baptist alive was a political move for Herod. To kill John, in Herod's mind, was to stir up some sort of uprising. Uh, The people held John to be uh, in high esteem. They thought that he was a prophet of God, as, as they well should have. But then comes Herod's birthday. So John has been placed in prison. It's Herod's birthday. And so he has his stepdaughter who is actually his great niece, come in and dance for Herod and for all of his guests who were there with him. And in verse 6, it says that it pleased Herod. So many understand this, I think rightfully so, when you consider the kinds of parties in these days. The Jews did not like birthdays, and so they didn't celebrate them. But yet the Romans would celebrate them, and they were always of a sensual, vulgar nature. So this girl comes in and sensually dances for Herod and for all of his people who are with him. And so since Herod is pleased with this dance from Salome, with this pomp and circumstance, although he only ruled a little tiny area, but thinking himself to be a big shot, he told her, well, basically, up to half of my kingdom, you can take whatever you want. And so this girl, she seems actually kind of wise, she goes back to her mother and says, hey, what should I ask for? Herod just told me that I could have basically anything I want. What should I ask for? And Herodias The one who was married to Herod, of course, knew of John the Baptist, hated John the Baptist because he spoke out against the inappropriate relationship of her and her husband. She tells her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist to be cut off and put onto a platter. 
And so the girl, you imagine, she walks back in. Everybody's thrilled with her. Everyone's like, oh, that was great. Thanks for doing that. You can have whatever you want. And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. It's disgusting. And John, or excuse me, Herod should have never made that kind of rash decision. He should have never made that kind of oath. To tell a young girl, you can have whatever you want. Is that ever going to happen? Is that ever going to be ending up good? No. But here this girl comes in and she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. All John was originally doing was speaking the word of God to a ruler in this area. And he was thrown in prison because he spoke that truth. And I'm sure that you can hear some application within that statement. We have a responsibility to speak the truth of the word of God into our own lives, into the lives of one another, into the lives of our family and our church family and in the culture that we live in. If we are not going to be a city on a hill, who is? If we're not going to be the salt of the earth, who is? If we're not going to be the light of the world, who is? If we're not going to stand up for the principles found in God's word that reflect the creator of the universe, then who is going to do that? Who is going to stand for truth like John the Baptist, regardless of the offense? I think you all know that I'm not that political when it comes to sermons. But I think in this situation, it kind of can't be avoided. The king is a political ruler, right? John the Baptist, here he's crying out and speaking the truths of God's word and and, and telling the king, telling Herod, that he needs to acquiesce to the word of God, that he needs to obey God's word. The interesting thing is that Herod wasn't a Jew. So we would say, well, the law of God, maybe it doesn't apply to Herod. He's not Jewish. But John the Baptist is saying, no, not at all. It is not right for you to have this woman. This is obviously a political statement. This is obviously John the Baptist standing up for the truth of God's word, no matter who it is. It didn't matter if he was a normal everyday Joe coming to him in the wilderness in order to be baptized. It didn't matter if it was the king of Galilee. He was going to call out this man. And I think all of us, in some way or another, you feel that tension happening as you watch the news, as you hear of different situations, how do we speak out in even our culture and our country in regards to what the truth of God's word has to say? I was reading this past week of uh, the decorated fireman, Kelvin Cochran, a Christian African-American man who had spent his life as a firefighter. And in the days when he was getting into being a firefighter, there was, uh, down in the South particularly, there was a lot of racism and a lot of hurdles that he had to jump over in order to become a fireman and to really grow within the ranks of being one. But eventually, after decades of service, he, he just grew and grew within the ranks. And eventually, Barack Obama, in 2009, gave him the opportunity to be the U.S. Fire Administrator. This is the, the highest office in the land in regards to being a fireman, and this man, Kelvin Cochran, was given this opportunity to be the U.S. fire administrator. He did a tremendous job uh, as that. But following his post, where he was recruited back to Atlanta, Georgia, by the mayor, uh, 
Chief Cochran got the department to an excellent rating. The Atlanta Fire Department, it was, it was immaculate. It got the highest rating that you can possibly get. But while he was off duty, he began to write a book. As a Christian man, he was contemplating certain Christian ideas. And so he was thinking about the question that God asks Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve go to God and after they had sinned and they recognize that they're naked. And what does God ask them? He says, who told you that you were naked? And so Chief Cochran writes a book called, Who Told You That You Were Naked? And within the book, in a few short sentences, he makes clear that he believes that all sex should be confined to a man and a woman in marriage and that homosexual activity is wrong. It only took a few sentences in a book that he wrote in his spare time, but he was fired for holding these views. Views that are not in line with the city of Atlanta, yet are in line with the word of God. And so they fired one of really the most decorated firemen in the country. The point is this. Chief Cochran spoke the truth about what he believed. And his beliefs were grounded in the word of God. And it cost him his job. John the Baptist spoke the truth about what he believed. And his beliefs were grounded in the word of God. And it cost him his head. Is your voice going to be heard as well? Do we... Do we Retreat? Do we hide? Do we pull away? Do we act ashamed of what God's word has to say? Or do we speak it regardless of the situation? I think it's safe to say that John spoke the truth regardless of the situation. Chief Cochran certainly knew that if the wrong people got his book, that it would probably cause a little bit of an issue for him. But yet he wrote it nonetheless because it was grounded in the word of God. So Chief Cochran offended people with his book. John the Baptist offended King Herod. But regardless of how people react, are we willing to stand up for the truth of God's word? Charles Spurgeon said, Herod could bear to do the deed, but he could not bear to be told that he had committed an unlawful act. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. Nobody likes to be told that they're sinful. And how true that is for our culture and our families and maybe even in our church. That we are fine to live in our sin. But the moment somebody would dare to come to us and tell us about our sin, we take offense. Right? Instead of coming in repentance, God, I'm sorry. Church, I'm sorry for my sin. We harden ourselves and disregard the gracious gift of somebody willing to love us enough to tell us the truth. Husbands, do you love your wives enough To tell them the truth about the sin that you see in their lives. Wives, do you love your husbands enough to tell them the truth and to deal with the sin that is going on in their lives? Parents, do you have the love for your children to look at your children and say, what you're doing is wrong and by the word of God, you must stop. Church members, do you lovingly confront one another over the sin going on in each other's lives? Do you allow other people to come into your life and to speak the word of God into it? Or do you, like Herod, not want to hear it and push the person away? But I want you to notice verse 9 with me. After all this happens, verse 9, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. The text says that he was sorry. He was sorry that he had been so rash with that girl to tell her, hey, I'll I'll give you anything that you want. 
But instead of looking stupid in front of his guests and saying, no, I will not do that thing. See, that's the problem. When you make a rash oath, when you make some kind of vow like that, you have to make a stupid decision to follow through with it too. And that's exactly what happens with Herod. But we, mean, we need to make clear that although Herod was sorry, it did not lead him to repent. There's a very clear difference between feeling sorry after you did something that you knew you shouldn't have done and that sorrow leading you to repentance. There's a big difference. If you're simply sorry and you leave it at that, then no change has been made like with Herod. But if you are sorrowful and grieving and it leads you to repentance, then great gain will be had in your life. The Apostle Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. So there is a difference between just normal grief, normal sorrow, and godly grief, godly sorrow. The godly sorrow leads to repentance. And I think we can be safe to say that Herod did not have godly grief. He's simply sorry that he had done this thing. It's easy to look at Herod and to think, Man, I would never do something like that. To look at Herod and we bristle that he would have a young girl come into his presence with all of his friends. And that makes us bristle. To think that he would have John the Baptist's head cut off. That, that causes us to be uncomfortable. We don't think that we would ever do. But the only difference between you and me and Herod is the grace of God. When we consider Christ's words about lustful and hateful hearts, we have committed the adultery. We have committed the murder that Herod has committed. But has our sorrow over our sin, has it led us to repentance? Have we repented over sins committed? And I think that's something sorely lacking in so many of our lives. And I think that's something lacking within the church. That even as a church, we might, we might recognize, you know, the way we did certain things at certain points, even in the course of the last year or so, the last couple of years, and we say, man, we, we really shouldn't have done things that way. Are we willing to say, God, we are sorry, and it's going to lead us to repent. As a church, we turn from what we did, and we go on. Are we willing to do that as a church? That's uncomfortable stuff. What about a family? When we're addressing sins and issues that we have as families, and we say, we have been acting this way for a decade, we have to turn. We have to be sorry over our sin. We have to grieve and repent and turn and go, right? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to do that individually within our own lives? Has our sorrow led us to a deep and genuine repentance over our sin? Two offensive prophets. One of them without honor in his hometown, one of them without a head yet both of them holding fast to the truths of God. I want you to consider with me now the state of the kingdom. Jesus has been rejected clearly. As we saw in Matthew chapter 12, he's been rejected by the masses, he's been rejected by the Pharisees, and here in this passage this morning, he's been rejected by his own people, the people of Nazareth. Nobody wants him. He's offensive. And not only has Jesus been rejected, but John the Baptist has now been rejected. This forerunner of the Messiah, now he's beheaded. So when you consider the state of the kingdom at this point, we have to assume that the kingdom of God is a miserable failure. Nobody accepted Jesus. They were all offended by him. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And now John the Baptist has been beheaded. I mean, if Jesus is a modern day missionary right now, he's a total bust. Like, Writing back to the churches that support him. Writing back to the mission board that supports him. Right? How many people have trusted him? Oh, I got 12 guys that kind of like me. And they're going to end up denying me. But 
He's a total failure at this point of what it looks like. Jesus was offensive. But the kingdom, although in seedling form like we looked at within the parables, although small and, and, and not very large at this point, it would grow. That mustard seed would grow into a great and mighty kingdom. Yet Jesus and preaching Christ is offensive. The Apostle Paul says that preaching Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews. It is an offense to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. The preaching of Christ is an offense. And if you are going to teach and preach and talk about Christ and his work, people are going to be offended at you too. But thank God that although Jesus and his work are offensive to unbelievers, that to believers in Christ, he is the power and the wisdom of God. Lord, thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you'll grow us in it and help us to understand it well. Christ, we thank you for the example of coming to this earth and to holding fast to the truth, submitting yourself to the Father and preaching and teaching wherever you went, regardless of the situation, regardless of the people of the town hated you, regardless of the Pharisees hated you, regardless of if others did. Thank you for the example of you. Thank you for the example of John who although in prison was willing to speak the truth about sin. Lord, we pray that you will give us great wisdom and tact in how we address one another, how we address our families, how we address our culture, and how we address the people of our towns. May we go boldly, regardless of how people think of us, may we go boldly with the truths of your word and the gospel. Pray the song Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.